Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It's good to be in God's house. I hope you have your Bible this morning. Our Bible study will take us to a couple of primary passages, as well as a few secondary verses scattered hither and yon through the Scriptures. Uh, I would like all of you, as we begin our Bible study today, to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter number 15. So we're going to begin, and I'm going to ask everyone here in just a few moments to stand as we read the first of the two primary texts in our study this morning. So if you would uh, grab your Bible and get ready to go, I'd like everyone who's able to read and who is healthy enough to stand up and strong enough, feeling well this morning, to be standing in the honor of the Word of God. So if you do that at this time... We're going to read together, excuse me, Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. Shall we begin? Matthew chapter number 15 now, encouraging all of you to stand in honor of the Word of God, and we shall read verses 1 through 20. We'll read this in unison, all of us together. Here we go. Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and said unto them, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your traditions? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father and mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, It is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouths, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines, commandments of men. And he called the multitude and said unto them, Hear and understand, not that which goeth into the mouth defileth the man, it which goeth out of the mouth, this defileth the man. Then came his disciples and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? But he answered and said, Every plant which my father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone, they be blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Declare unto us this parable. And Jesus said, Are ye also yet without understanding? Do ye not yet understand? Whosoever entereth into the mouth, both in the belly, is cast out into the draught. Mouth cometh forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat one washing hands defileth not a man. Thank you. Now before you sit down, if you would turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. And we'll read just a couple of more verses. I'd like to read together in unison the second text that we're going to be examining. This would be the first, we'll, just, we'll go with the first five, just the first five verses of Psalm chapter number 51. 
So reading together now in unison, Psalm 51, 1 through 5. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, the only, have I done, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shaped in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Thank you very much, and you may be seated and get comfortable. Now, <clears throat> I've entitled this lesson, The Most Hated Doctrine. I did not make that up. I, I, I swiped that title from someone else. As I was preparing this lesson, going back in time and, and reflecting on different aspects of it, I stumbled across, by accident, or perhaps it was Providence, uh, another gentleman who had been in this area. And, and he claimed that the subject that we're going to be diving into today is the, the single doctrine among Christians that they dislike the most. It is the one that causes people the most negative reaction of all. And you'll per perhaps perceive why many do struggle a great deal with this doctrine and find it to be something that they just can't accept. They just find it, it is just too, it's just too tough, just too, just too difficult a doctrine for them to accept. And it's dealing with sin. Now, the, the subject of sin is not new to any of us. All of us have, are generally familiar with certain broad concepts about sin. And we all, of course, would agree that sin is something that we should clearly try to avoid. But there's a lot of ideas that need to be brought together and, and looked at from a biblical point of view as we look at the topic of sin. And so there's, been a, a, there's a tremendous amount of, of theology that could be examined dealing with this general topic of sin and how we manage it, manage to work our way intellectually through this topic, and then how we try to apply in our lives some kind of guidelines and precepts by which we can seek to avoid sin. So there's much to say here. So <clears throat> the topic of sin theologically is sometimes called harmardiology, kind of a mouthful, but it essentially goes back to a word that means to miss the mark. And as our, in our introduction, there are a couple of different approaches by which people try to begin by saying, well, well what is sin? Let's, let's get a, some kind of a working definition. Now, I, I like the Augustinian approach the best in terms of coming up with a definition of, of what sin is. It's, it's a biblically rooted definition, but it goes a little further than that. And, and, and so I kind of find that to be the, the Augustinian approach, perhaps one of the most useful and when you dive into the topic of sin generally and you look at the theology of it, there's a lot of terms that, get, that, are, that are tossed around. There's a lot of, there, there's Pelagian and ism and semi-Pelagianism and there, there's uh, all kinds of terms. I'm, I'm going to try to avoid as, some of the heavier theological words um, because it requires a lot of plowing pretty deep, uh, you know, to, to, to really get those right. So I'm going to try to avoid those. But as, as we look at as in a, in our introduction and just consider, well, what is sin? Let's just start with what it says in Scripture. 1 John 3, 4 tells us that sin is transgression of the law. All right, sin is transgression of the law. So God has a series of laws, commandments, and statutes that he's established. 
And so we trust and believe that those are standards by which we should govern our lives and standards of conduct, standards of thought, standard of word, standard of deed. And a, a, a violation of those is, is sin. But, but, but what does that mean, a violation of those is sin? Well, how does that, how does that work? So the Augustinian approach says, look, uh, instead of sin, viewing sin as a, an absolute thing in and of itself, Augustine, and he lived in the, in the fourth century, he said that the sin really is more of the missing part. It's, it's the missing aspects of your life that keep you from being flawless or completely righteous before God. And I'm sure I've mentioned this before, the, 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 the now famous analogy he suggested was if you take a piece of garment that is perfect and looks excellent in every way, you would say it is a flawless garment. Sin would be represented by a hole in the garment. It's the missing part. It's that which falls short. It is the violation part. It's the part where the garment has been damaged or violated. It is the missing part. And so if, if, if your life is completely flawless, you would be like that perfect garment, that perfect coat or jacket. And if your life has uh, uh, violates God's law in many areas, those missing, the, the, the part that, that you're not measuring up in, the things that you aren't doing that you should be doing, the things that are going wrong, everything that's going haywire, shall we say, represents uh, holes and damages to your, to your garment. So I think it's kind of a useful way to look at sin. And of course, as we move into the, the topic of sin, we have to answer an important question right at the get-go. Now, the first part of this lesson this morning is really going to be kind of a theological examination and, and looking at this doctrine. But the second part of the lesson, I hope to move into sort of an emotion, uh, a, 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 a practical aspect. And I want you to, to, as we move into a more practical aspect, I want to, to try to look into it as a more reflective aspect. So part of the purpose of the of, of our, our study today is going to be to establish right doctrine uh, for, for useful application so that we have a better understanding of our own lives and where we can improve and how we can improve and what we can do that's practical and useful. So we begin with, of course, uh, an important question that is more difficult to answer than what we, appears to meet the eye. The first question that is sometimes posed dealing in the area of sin is this one, simply, why does every person sin in one way or another? Why does every person sin? Every person. Why, why does every person sin? We know that every person sins. We all are familiar with Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Fallen short again, that's the, the gap. There, we, we, we have, there are things that we haven't done. So, but why have all sinned? So that takes us into a question of, of human beings and human nature. And what does the Bible teach about human nature? So there's really two alternatives. There's really only two alternatives speaking broadly. Now, theologians, being intelligent people and able to work with words, will try to carve out maybe territory other than these two big areas. But really, when you get right down to it, there's only two possible answers to this question. Why does every person sin? And the emphasis on the word every. If you think about the millions, even billions of human beings that have lived in Adam's race, 
since the inception of time. Every person has sinned. We're setting Jesus Christ aside, of course, because being the Son of God. But every person has sinned of Adam's race. So why has every single one, everyone, out of millions upon millions upon millions who have lived, and even millions upon millions upon millions who have attempted to live godly over thousands of years, why have they all sinned? All. So there's two alternatives. The first alternative, it is because there is something wrong with our environment. The first alternative says, well, we all start innocent. We all start innocent and we all start with our programming intact. But we are placed in a damaged environment. We're in a fallen world and the fallen world is just essentially screwed up to the max. And because it is so screwed up and it offers so many temptations and so many troubles in, around us, and those temptations are so constant that even the best of us is eventually going to whittle be, be torn down and worn down is going to fail. It is because of our environment. It is because we begin innocent. Our programming, our innate programming, by nature that which has been placed into our little brains, in our DNA, in our little structures, that, 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 that the beginning program that we've been placed within our human nature, that inner part of us that we start with, that's fine. That's good. We start good. We start without any problems there, but we're placed in an environment that is utterly overwhelming in its sinfulness, and we simply become sinful. We learn to sin. We practice sin. We become habitually, we're just overwhelmed. We're just overwhelmed by the evil environment. So that's alternative one. Alternative two says, no, it's really because we begin with damaged programming. We're not born innocent. We begin with our programming already damaged. It's a, the, the, if, if, in, in likening a human to, to someone who has something that's innately placed within them, that which has been innately placed within them is already damaged. And so it, there's going to be errors. So the errors and the sins that inevitably emerge, and they will inevitably emerge, if they haven't emerged at the very beginning, they're going to inevitably emerge because there are errors in the programming. So it boils down to those two alternatives as to why every single human being ultimately is a sinner. Is it because of the nature, the innate programming, or is it because of the environment? And there really are those are the only two alternatives. <clears throat> now, in my view, the latter is the better answer, is the correct answer. That is, we begin with damaged programming. We begin with errors. We begin with sins. We be, that is, we begin with problems, and those, and those problems are going to produce sin, they're going to produce errors, they're going to produce mistakes, and it doesn't really matter what the environment would be. It's going to be produced inevitably because we have damaged programming. Now, I think that is the correct answer. I think it's biblically the right concept, and that's really the concept that we're running with here this morning. And I'd like to elaborate on that just a little bit. So the question next comes, okay, all right, how is it that we begin our life with damaged programming? How, is, how did that happen? Did God make us, did God make Adam with damaged programming? Did God make Adam and Eve already screwed up? Did he innately pour into their brain, into their nature, a damaged program? No. The answer is no. 
we know that is false. But we do know that Adam and Eve fell. And we do know that the fall of Adam and Eve produced consequences of a grave nature. Now, the general concept that I'm running with here this morning, this damage programming is sometimes can be called theologically imputed sin. Sometimes it's called original sin. And that is passed to us from Adam. Now, it's a long conversation that, that is not particularly controversial about um, how Adam and Eve fell. Because we intuitively understand, and the Scripture is clear enough, that God made everything very good in the beginning. And we, there are very few people who are going to argue, well, it's God's fault because He made Adam and Eve wrong and, and, and bad. You know, very few theologians are going to run that direction. So we don't need to worry about that, really. It's generally agreed that God made Adam and Eve just fine. Everything was just fine. And the Garden of Eden was just fine. Everything was just fine. There was no problems. And we all understand that, that a tempter came. And we could go into another area of sin and say, well, okay, uh, we could talk about the origin of sin. Now, the origin of sin is another area because then that takes you into the origin of evil. And so you've got to talk about all kinds of ideas associated, well, with Satan, well... Did sin originate with Satan? Well, how did Satan get, how, did, how is it that Satan became sinful? And then did, did, did God make Satan uh, knowingly, did God know that Satan was going to be that way? And so you get all kinds of little logical trails you can run down. We're not going in any of that direction. We're not here to discuss actually the origin of evil or the origin of sin, only to accept, that, to, to know and understand that there is an origin of sin, there is an origin of evil, and it does kind of go back, the story does emerge in the Garden of Eden, and although Adam and Eve were made innocent, they didn't remain innocent. And that, again, is not particularly controversial. They didn't remain innocent. The question is, how about you and I, though? I mean, that takes us to, what about, what about us? How did you and I manage to emerge into this problem where we aren't innocent either at the beginning? And the answer is, is called original sin. So there are th several passages we could look at in Scripture. But let's kind of look at it from this point of view. Let's just look at a couple of quick passages. In Romans 5.12, we have a clear verse. I think it's pretty clear. Romans 5.12, it tells us, it says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now, there's a lot packed into that verse. Let me read it again more slowly. One man, by, as by one man, sin entered into the world. That's Adam. Death by sin. Death is the consequence of sin. All right, let that settle in. Death is a consequence of sin. And so death passed upon all men, for all men have sinned. Okay. So somehow... Adam's sin and Eve, Adam's sin is, connects to us. Now, Ephesians chapter 2 elaborates a little bit on this with a, a, a verse that's almost an aside, a phrase that's almost an aside by Paul. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes this. I'm reading in verse 3. He says, Among whom also we had our conversation in time past in the lusts of our flesh. The lusts of our flesh 
fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. We, Paul says, speaking to the church at Ephesus, we are by nature children of wrath. We are by nature the children of wrath. In the 1 Corinthians 15.22 is another verse that elaborates a little bit more, which I won't read. But essentially, we discover by examining these passages closely and, and others that we begin life with damaging program and there is imputed sin or original sin that is embedded within us from the very get-go. From the very beginning, from the very beginning of your existence, your nature is sinful. Your innate being is damaged. And the programming by which you function is damaging. Thus, errors will emerge. Inevitably, they will emerge. Now, a lot of people are skeptical of this doctrine, and we haven't really even gotten to the hard part yet, but a lot are skeptical of the doctrine of original sin and of the I concept. Let me just consider something else. <clears throat> Let's go to the animal kingdom. If we consider a parallel circumstance in the animal kingdom, we could ask this question. Why is it that all animals that we would encounter are selfish or cruel or foolish? Why is the animal kingdom such a harsh, cruel a screwed up world. At least it's just, it's just all the animals, they treat each other very, very badly. I mean, they're just, it's just, they just are. Is it because they learned this? Or is it because it is innate within them to follow their instinct and their instinct takes them, takes them in that direction? Is it their instinct? Is it their programming? Or is it something about the fallen world that they in? It's just such a tough neighborhood, you know. It's such a tough neighborhood that the, that the snake is inevitably going to eat the rabbit. Not cozy up with it. Well, the answer is it's innate. It's a result of damaged programming. They also suffered when Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden. Now, why that is so, again, is another sort of an area of theology that could be explored. But we won't really go down that road at the moment. Just, it's just enough to know that when Adam and Eve fell, all creation fell with them. Now, in the book of Romans, I'll just read one passage in this area. But Romans 8, verse 22, Paul writes, he says, The whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. The whole creation groans and pains in travail. The whole creation has fallen. And we could go to Genesis chapter 3. We could look at verses 17 and 18 in Genesis chapter 3, where it talks about the thorns and thistles are going to come forth, right? So if we, we could leave the animal kingdom and could go to the plant kingdom. And we've got the same problem in the plant kingdom. It doesn't matter. But we can continue on this, though, dealing with animals. If we kind of look backward, we could infer things by looking at the situation backward. So most of us would accept this kind of a timeline. We would say, all right, in the beginning, the world was perfect. There was a fall. Things have been screwed up ever since. At some point, they're going to be made perfect again, right? Now, that means they're going to be made perfect. They're going to be like they were in the beginning, right? So we have perfect, screwed up, screwed up, screwed up, damaged, everything's a mess. Perfect. 
we know a little bit about this perfect world that gives us a sense of what it must have been like in this perfect world. Again, in terms of eschatology, I'm broad brushing the situation. But consider a passage in Isaiah 11. If you have your Bibles, look in Isaiah 11 with me for just a few moments. There's something about this perfect world over here that's going to describe for us what we can infer by inference. We can think about what the world was at the beginning. When Isaiah, in 11, he describes the perfect world at the end. And he tells us, in verse 6, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion and fatling shall go together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall feed, the young ones shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like an ox. In verse 8, here's an interesting one. The sucking child, it's a nursing baby, a nursing baby, a sucking child shall play in the hole of an asp. Wow. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. So we get a sense when we consider the animal world that the animal world evidently was, is, is, is going to be in, in, in a perfect and pristine condition in the end. And at the beginning, it was like that as well. So we can, we can, we can, we can look backward and we can say, all right, there had to have been a fall in the animal world as well. So the animals fell with Adam. If the animals fell with Adam, it's an easy step to think that you and I fell with Adam. But here's another question for the skeptics on this point. How about this one? If all begin innocent, if all of us have begun innocent, why has not a single person in history ever successfully resisted the temptation of a damaged environment? Well, we now, as I said at the beginning, we, 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 can, we know that that's not true. That, it was, that is to say, we know that it is, it is true that no one has successfully resisted the temptation. What's interesting to know, though, did you know that there are some people who, 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 who believe, nonetheless, that that could happen? In history, there are at least two examples that are well known, that are cited, that, that, that say, hey, look, I think if you do it just right, a person could live a sin-free life. We can create a perfect world. We can create a perfect environment. Just in the last couple of hundred years, there have been several famous illustrations. There's a, there's a philosopher named Rousseau in France. He wrote a book called Emile, and it was about child training. And he argued that a child could be raised, if just in the right and perfect environment, could be made a perfect citizen, a perfect person, completely selfless, completely free of all flaws and sins. Of course, it, it didn't, didn't work. <laughs> this was prior to the French Revolution, and they adopted that general hope and philosophy, which failed miserably. Marx adopted the same philosophy. And of course, the, the Marxists in Bolshevik Russia made a similar attempt. This failed catastrophically, as we all know. Let me ask you this question now. Did Jesus have an opinion about the source of sin? So this is going to take us back to Matthew now, where we read. So let's go back to what we read at the beginning, Matthew chapter 15, and let's examine a couple of things. Let's take a little bit of time and look at this passage a little more closely. 
The conversation begins when the scribes and the Pharisees, in an effort to damage the credibility of Jesus, scold Jesus for the disciples not washing their hands before they eat. Now, all of us have grown up with the idea that cleanliness is probably a pretty good idea, and we would all typically normally want to wash our hands. But that's not the kind of washing the scribes and Pharisees were talking about. They weren't talking about, well, let's just wash the dirt off here and get a little soap and kind of give it do a quick wash before you, you have a sandwich. That's not the kind of washing they were talking about. They were talking about a ceremonial washing. They were talking about the idea that there's certain prescribed ceremonial cleansings that you ought to go through before you eat a meal. And those ceremonial cleansings not only make you clean in a a sense of hygiene, but they also make you clean enough to receive that which you're going to receive from this uh, damaged world out here, this, this sinful world. You're now ready to receive your meal. Now, Jesus doesn't answer their question, at least not at that point, in verse 2. He comes back to that near the end of the portion that we read. Instead, Jesus goes into this discussion. He says, well, wait a minute. Um, uh, How about you guys? And he takes them in another direction. He says, no, look, you guys do the same thing. You know, while we may be violating your rules about ceremonial washings, you're violating the commandments of God. And he says, look, you guys don't honor your father and your mother. And he says, you have added a whole bunch of extra features to that commandment that make it possible for you to avoid honoring your father and your mother. And he's scolding them because what they basically did is they had a way that you could make an offering. That is, you could, you could drop some money into the into the coin box and that would relieve you of the necessity of honoring your father and mother and so jesus is scolding them for that that interpretation and that perversion of the commandment to honor your father and mother and then he goes on down a little further i mean he finally gets to the main thrust of 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 the argument here it's that's in verse 11 let's read verse 11 closely And this is going to take us back now to the business about the washing and the eating and so forth and so on. And Jesus says, look, it's not that which goeth into the mouth that defiles a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth that defiles the man. Jesus is saying it's not what comes into you that makes you defiled or a sinner. It's that which comes out of you that reveals you are a sinner. All right? Because you guys have got it wrong. You're worried about going through all the ceremonial washing so you don't get infected from the world. And he wasn't talking about germs. He says, you just got it backwards. The problem isn't the world. The problem is inside you. Now, he clarifies this a little bit further. If we'll drop down to verse 19. Well, we could back up a little bit here. Verse 18, Jesus says, Those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart. They defile the man. The things that are flowing out of your heart is what defile you, which make you unclean, which demonstrate that you're a sinner. 
And then he says, out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murderers, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands defileth not the man. So on the question of where's the central problem dealing with sin, is it the inside of man or is it the environment? Where does Jesus come down on that? Does he say, oh, it's the environment that's the problem? If you're just very, very careful, you can, you can protect yourself from this sinful world that's filled with temptations and all kinds of problems. It's a sinful... But if you just protect yourself from that, the problem will be solved. He says it's actually the opposite. He says the problem is on the inside. The problem is the heart. It is out of the heart that originates blasphemies and fornication and all. And he lists several relatively notorious sins that everyone would agree are really sins we ought to try very, very hard to avoid. But he says they, they come out of the heart. That's what makes you a sinner. That's what defiles you. That's what makes you unclean is that which is proceeding out of your heart. Now, of course, we're all good enough Bible students to know that the heart isn't talking about the organ. That's right. The heart is talking about the inner part of you. Your, your, your innate, natural, instinctive you. Your programming, if we'd like to use modern language. The problem is your programming. It's your heart. Now we could back up a little bit and to kind of to follow up on this. The reason that, that Jesus cites the commandment about the not how they how they fail to father honor their father and their mother is because Jesus is pointing out to them it's because man is fallen that we pervert even great ideas Jesus is saying look (laughs) you're fussing about how come I didn't wash my hands you guys have taken this phenomenally great idea honor our father and mother because you're wicked on the inside you have perverted it you have screwed it up And that point goes to the general principle that because man has fallen, because man is damaged on the inside, that whatever he touches (laughs) gets goofed up, gets damaged, gets gets hurt. And it's it's difficult for us to avoid that problem. This this, this problem that springs out from within us. Now, so we see that Jesus does have an opinion about the source of sin. And it wasn't the damaged environment that we live in. It was man's damaged heart. And it's ever-present within man. And it's ever-present in man from the get-go, from the very beginning. The very beginning. Now, this is going to take us to Psalm 51. So let's go to Psalm 51 next. And we've read several of the words there. We've looked at some of the passages in Psalm 51. I want to look at them a little more closely. So David provides insight into Psalm 51. This is the chapter that contains a couple of ideas that are going to be really hard for us to accept. Now, some people have already found what I've said this morning, and they might have find, find that, that this is a doctrine, this idea of original sin, this idea of being infected with original sin and having damaged programming from the very, very beginning of your existence is already a little bit irritating and already grates at some people who are maybe listening this morning, maybe you're in this room, or maybe people who end up 
tuning in on, 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 on Rumble or wherever. But David has some very strong language here that takes us and profiles this and, and why some people would call this the most hated doctrine, a doctrine that re- people really, really react against. Because it's going to push us to the extreme, David does, our sense of justice. All right, are you ready? You're going to be pushed here to your sense of justice is really going to be pushed into a corner. All righty, and we'll see how you do. We'll see how I do. This is not easy for any of us. Now, before we read and recap these verses in Psalm 51, let's, let's remember the context. Very briefly, the story of Psalm 51 is this. <clears throat> David, when he was supposed to be out at battle leading the armies, stayed in Jerusalem. While he was there in the palace, he observed a young lady not far away, thought she was beautiful. David being a very powerful king, a very popular king, a king to whom people don't say no to, told this lady to come to his palace, and there an adulterous relationship unfolded. That young lady, of course, was Bathsheba. Most of us remember this story well, don't we? Well, when it was discovered... And things began to unfold, and the Bathsheba was with child. All right? <clears throat> David said, well, I've got a little bit of a problem here. So he said, what am I going to do? Well, to kind of move through the story quickly here, David essentially called his general in, and he said, Joab, I want you to create a circumstance out there in the battlefield and get this lady's husband murdered. That is, get him killed in battle. Intentionally place him where you know he will be killed. In fact, do more than put him in a dangerous spot. Arrange the tactics on the battlefield so that you'll move forward in the attack and then withdraw and abandon him so you'll be certain that he dies. It was, in a sense, murder. All right. So Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, dies. And we know how the rest of the story goes. Bathsheba becomes David's wife. A child is born. There's a little baby. David thinks, well, everything's all settled and fine. We can kind of put that in our past and we'll all be happy now and we can move forward. And then Nathan the prophet arrives and says to David, you have sinned a great sin against God. David says, oh, you know, you're right. David repents. He acknowledges his sin, which is unusual for a king to do, of course. He humbles himself, and he says, well, what do I have to do? Thinking, well, God's probably going to strike me dead. Instead, God says, the child's going to die. The child is going to die. David hopes this is not true. He fasts. He prays. Does no good. The child dies. After the death of the child now, and the story is finally settled out, David writes the words that we've read in Psalm 51. Now that's the background to Psalm 51. And if we recall those circumstances, as we read through it, we can glean a little more out of the text than if we didn't know anything about the story. So let's go back to this now. 
And let's observe a couple of things. So David begins, have mercy upon me, according to the multiply of that tender mercy, blot out my transgressions. That's verse 1, nothing, nothing surprising there. He says, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, cleanse from my sin. Nothing too surprising there. I acknowledge my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. So David is in deep repentance. And for this, God is pleased. Now, jump, drop into verse 5. Verse 5 is a key verse here. It says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, there are two alternatives to the interpretation of what David means by this verse. Those who don't like David and don't like God and don't like the Bible and want to make everything look as nasty and ugly as possible say, Oh, uh, in sin did my mother conceive me means that David was born out of wedlock. David was an illegitimate child. There was an adulterous relationship between Jesse and some other woman. Well, of course, there's no evidence for that in Scripture whatsoever. That's totally made up, and that is wrong. And most theologians don't go there. They intuitively say, well, that, that's, that's just what uh, people who hate God and hate the Bible would like us to believe. Most are forced into the other alternative. And the other alternative is that David is talking about something different entirely here. He says, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is where David is admitting he is corrupt and guilty in his heart, in the inner part of him, in his programming, in his mind, in his soul. The inner part of him is innately, from the very beginning, is damaged. He began with damaged programming from his conception. From the earliest moment of his existence that he could think of, he was damaged. And why would David bring that up? Because David is working his way through and he's explaining why he sinned. It wasn't the temptation, necessarily, that was the central and earliest problem. It wasn't the beginning of the problem. The beginning of the problem wasn't when David observed Bathsheba from the roof of his palace and said, Wow, that's a pretty good looking gal. That wasn't the beginning of the problem. The beginning of the problem is the seed that was within David. It wasn't the temptation. The temptation's always there. Kings always have those temptations. My goodness, if you were a rich and powerful king, wouldn't you have women all, all around? Constantly. The temptation is always there. The origin of the problem is within David. That's the nub of the problem. From the very get-go is the nub of the problem, the beginning and the origin of the problem. And so David goes back to his very origin. He said, I, I am broken from the beginning. I am damaged from the beginning, and I acknowledge that. I'm guilty because I am corrupt in my heart, and my innate programming, going back to my very conception, was damaged. Now let's go to verse 4. <clears throat> I skipped verse 4 because this is probably the most difficult. That is the most difficult for us to acknowledge and understand and accept. <clears throat> so let's look closely at verse 4. David says something in, ver in the first phrase here that is remarkable. He says, against thee, thee only, have I sinned. Wow, wait a minute. What could that mean? Against thee, thee only, have I sinned. Didn't he sin against Uriah, who he murdered? 
Didn't he sin against Bathsheba? Didn't he sin perhaps against even maybe his other, other wives? And didn't he sin when he told, didn't he, make jo, didn't he sin against Joab? When he told Joab, I want you to intentionally manipulate matters so that this man dies. Wouldn't Joab have a reason to be angry with David? You, you, David, you, you intentionally ordered me to murder one of my best soldiers. If Uriah could speak, would he not be offended? If Bathsheba could voice, could she not say, I'm guilty, but David, you're guilty too. How am I supposed to say no to you? Didn't David sin against these other people as well? But that's not what he says. Why does David say in verse 4, why does he say, against thee and thee only have I sinned? It's because David is talking about a, dif a different sense of sin than, what, than the action that unfolded at that moment in time. <clears throat> David was speaking of the root of his sin problem. David was speaking of the beginning of his sin problem. David was not speaking about the outward actions and the environmental problem. David was speaking about his heart. He was speaking about the innate sinful problem that he has within. Now also, <clears throat> this explains why we have such a, a well-known verse and why they, one of the key verses in the entire passage, of course, is verse 10. All of us are very familiar with verse 10. Look at verse 10. It says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. It is because he's dealing with the internal, the source of the problem, the heart of the problem, the root of the problem, his innate fallen nature, that he says he wants a new heart. Give me a new heart. He doesn't re even really, he's not asking here, oh, make me a better king so I don't screw up like I just did. He says, give me a new heart, because he recognizes that's the source of the problem. He was seeking a new nature. Can you see that? He was seeking a new nature. He wanted a new heart. He, didn't, he wanted something new. Now, we'll come back to that thought here in a minute. But let's go back to verse 4. The second half of verse 4 is also difficult. Now, it's constructed in such a way, we read the second part, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. What does that mean? Now, it's constructed in an awkward way, so it's hard for us in English to, to, get, to get the sense of it. And, and this is one of the problems that translators have. And in the King James Bible, being a word-for-word -word translation, sometimes a word-for-word -word translation results in sort of a, 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 a phraseology that, that, that is awkward to us. But when you dissect it down, and I'm not a Hebrewist, so I don't have the, the skill of, of, of dissecting the, the Hebrew language in, 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 in perfection. But essentially what it goes into, it's telling us <clears throat> that David acknowledges that God was just when he took the baby's life. You have done things right. Your judgment was clear. Your judgment was true. It is just, right, and proper 
God, the way you manage this circumstance. It was not wrong of you to take the baby's life. Now, while on the surface all of us can say, yeah, I guess, I guess I'm going to have to agree with that. I can't really say that God was wrong, but there's a big part of us that feels like that was wrong. That was not fair. That was not just. God should have killed David and not the baby. Why did God cause the baby to die? Why was that, why was that just, right, and fair in the larger picture? In the big picture, why was it just and proper for that baby's life to be taken? And the answer is because the baby was not innocent either. None of us are innocent. None of us, let that settle in your head, none of us are innocent at the beginning. None. Not just as adults, but even as children and infants. Like all infants, like all infants, he deserved death. Not because of what his father did, but because he was innately sinful and all sin deserves death. That's the answer. And really, it's the, only, it's the only answer. But it's a hard answer, isn't it? That is hard to say that that baby deserved death. We don't want to think that any infant deserves death. The fact is, every infant deserves death and every adult deserves death, and we all deserve death. That is the nature of the, the sin problem. That is how big the sin problem is. Now, of course, that takes you to the next thing then. Logically, we could say, all right, as, you, as we react against that, this question could be posed. If, if infants are born innocent, let's suppose they are, and they're born without original sin. Why do some of them die? They die for the same reason all of us die. All of us die because we all deserve death. Because we are all sinners. Whether you die at 5, or 50, or 95, or 5 months, or 5 minutes. We all deserve death from the beginning, from the get-go. And it's in God's providence and God's grace, whether you get five days of life or 105 years of life, every moment and every breath is a gift from God. Amen. An undeserved gift from God from the very beginning, every breath from the very origin. Now David's request for a clean heart is realized in Christ. Ezekiel 11 speaks and prophesies he's going to grant us a new heart. And 2 Corinthians, I'll read one passage out of here. So we, we could read from Ezekiel 11, 19 and 20, and I could read from Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, but for the sake of time, I'll just read one passage. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. 
Now, David knew that. (laughs) He didn't know Christ, but he knew that there would be a Messiah, and he knew that it was not a ridiculous desire to have a new heart, which is why Ezekiel prophesied that that would happen, that he was going to, God would grant a a new, put put a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone into his people. So when David said, create me a clean heart, he was asking for a new nature, and that new nature is realized in Jesus Christ. And that new nature is planted within us at the moment of our conversion, but the old nature is not stripped away. Amen. And that is why we have the wrestlings that we do. And that is why Paul in Romans chapter 7 says, I struggle so much to do the things that I should, and I end up doing the things that I shouldn't do. I'm constantly doing the things that I shouldn't do, and the things that I should, I don't. Or vice versa. That's why Paul describes that inner struggle that all of us have, even as a converted person, because we have now have a new nature, but the old nature is still there. The bad programming is still present. And I guess, in a sense, a patch has been put on. Amen. A programming patch has been integrated within us. But it's, it, they're, they're both struggling. They're both within our hearts. That, that's probably not a perfect example to go into computer science here as we discuss this theology, but that, in a sense, is what's going on. Now, with what little time we've got left, I wanted to look at sin in a practical way. Now that we really understand the depth of the problem, there are a lot of different ways to categorize sin. The Roman Catholics like to categorize it between venial sins and mortal sins. Here's a practical way that I like. There's four areas we could look at sins. You could say, well, there's sins of omission and commission. But here here are four words. One is the sins of attitude. Next are sins of intent. Third, we have sins of neglect. And finally, we have sins of action. Sins of attitude, sins of intent, sins of neglect, and sins of action. Now, the sin of attitude is intensely subtle. It's the mood and the sentiment of our thoughts. We might be able to hide that, at least from one another. Maybe not. But the mood and sentiment of our thoughts are the sins of attitude. The second one, the sins of intent. Those are the things we think about, but may or may not do. If a man lusts after a woman in his heart, that's a, that's, a, that's a sin of intent. Even if he's the only one who knows about it, besides God. <laughs> that which we may think about, but we may or may not ever do. The sins of neglect. These are the oversights. These are the things we may or may not be aware of that we should have done that we didn't. Maybe we are aware of a neglect, and we say in hindsight, boy, I sure wish I would have done that. That would have been right and proper, but I didn't, and I regret it now. Or maybe we don't even know at all. We have no idea. It doesn't come to our sense at all. It's still a sin of neglect. We're not even aware that we failed to do something we should have done. And, of course, the sins of actions. The sins of actions are probably the fewest in terms of our list of sins. 
we have a list of all the sins you've committed this week. The sins of action are probably the fewest, but they probably are the most damaging. Now, as we close and we reflect on sin a little further in a practical way, I'd like to close with some quotations. Now, I want all of you to listen to some of these quotations. These are all by men of thoughtfulness, men of, of, of deep reflection who, whose writings uh, are, are admired by many and, and for good reason. So I'm going to give you a few quotations about sin. And these are, not, these, are, these, these are theologians and biblical writers. They are not quotations from the Bible. They are much more contemporary. And so we can relate to some of them, I think, in, in, a, in a real way. At least most of them are contemporary. The first one is a, is a reflective one written by a gentleman named Oswald Chambers. If you're familiar with him, he wrote a, a, a very famous study or, or sort of a, um, a, a book that's meant for your personal reflection. Oswald Chambers wrote, We have to recognize that sin is a fact. Sin is red-handed mutiny against God. Either God or sin must die in my life. If sin rules in me, God's life in me will be killed. If God rules in me, sin in me will be killed. That alludes to the struggle that we all have. Our second quote is from a man who wasn't even a Christian, but he recognized had a strong sense of right and wrong, had a sense of virtue. And he wrote this 2,000 years ago. He was a Roman named Seneca. And he pointed out that hypocrisy is always dogging us. All of us are hypocrites. Inevitably, we're hypocrites. The only people who aren't hypocrites are the people who don't try. They're the only ones who aren't hypocrites. Of course everyone in a church is a hypocrite. Of course every pastor and minister is a hypocrite. If he's trying, if you're trying, of course you're a hypocrite. <laughs> but that hypocrisy stings, doesn't it, when you observe it in others. And Seneca, even a pagan Roman, observed this. He said... He put it this way, other men's, sins are before our, uh, other men's sins are before our eyes. Our own are behind our backs. <laughs> Let me give you a third one. This is by a gentleman named D.A. Carson. It's a little longer. He says, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from a grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. Now, the, all of that drifting, it's because we have this constant problem of our nature. 
that is an ever-present tug in the wrong direction. <laughs> from the get-go, from the beginning, from your first breath until you take your last. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. He said, you'll always know whether you are delivered from the guilt of sin by answering this question. Am I delivered from the love of sin? Am I delivered from the love of sin? <laughs> and finally, this one is very good. Despite the fact that it was from a gentleman who is a Pentecostal, who I'm typically don't find a lot that I admire about Pentecostals. This gentleman, Dennis Kinlaw, had a very good statement here. A very good, theologically sound statement. And it kind of follows up with some of the slogans that we hear that, that pass in our culture. Like, uh, follow your heart. Love yourself. You know, you do you. All these sorts of things. Here's what he had to say. Satan disguises, excuse me. Satan disguises submission to himself under the ruse of personal autonomy. Satan never asks us to become his servant. Never once did the serpent say to Eve, I want to be your master. The shift in commitment is never from Christ to evil. It is always from Christ to self. And instead of his will... Self-interest now rules, and what I want reigns. That is the essence of sin. Amen. And the reason, of course, that if we shift from God's desires to our own desires, and why that inevitably always leads to sin, is because of our fallen nature from the very beginning that is always with us. In closing, I want all of you to just pause for a few moments. And before I step down from the pulpit, I'd like you to think about your own life. Now, we won't have an altar call but I'd like every one of you, right now, to just sit and think, where in my life am I going awry? Don't delude yourself that you're not going awry somewhere. I am. And as I prepare Bible lessons like this, they usually challenge me and make me feel somewhat unqualified to even stand before you. Because I see so many flaws in my own life. And you see others, no doubt. <laughs> but I ask for you to look deeply for a few moments in self-reflection. So just sit quietly. And I'm not going to speak. And I ask everyone to close your eyes if you like. Think not upon your brother. Think upon yourself. And say, Father in heaven, reveal to me, reveal to me, O God in heaven, where my sin nature has taken me that I should not go. Open up a window into my soul 
so that I can see myself as you see me. And I can recognize more of the shortfalls that exist. Help me, O God. Convert my heart. Bring me into Christ. Bring me to the cross of Christ. God in heaven, bring us to the cross of Christ. As the old hymn tells us, that we're a wretch. And even so it is. Thank you, Father in heaven. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen. Amen. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for your time this morning.